beyond coronavirus. How does the world recover? A keynote address delivered on Tuesday, 13th of May, 2021, by Professor Henrietta Moore, founder and director of the Institute for Global Prosperity, UCL. Followed by commentary from Professor Jermaine O'Donovan, clinical professor in the School of Medicine, Dentistry and Biomedical Sciences at Queen's University, Belfast. With a welcome address from Professor Ian Greer, President and Vice-Chancellor at Queen's University. Question and answer session chaired by Anne Watt, Director of Pivotal Public Policy Forum. And concluding remarks from Professor Stuart Elborn, the Pro-Vice-Chancellor in Queen's University. I would like to thank you all for joining us at this virtual event as we discuss Beyond Coronavirus, How Does the World Recover? In January 2020, none of us could have predicted the deep and sustained global impact of the COVID-19 pandemic. Across the world, societies continue to face challenges, too numerous to mention, in navigating the pandemic. In the midst of this continuing crisis, universities more than ever have played a critical role in societies across the world, working in partnership with each other, with industry, with NGOs and with governments, all to tackle the global challenge that is COVID-19. Indeed, the important research and education undertaken at universities has shaped and informed the global response to the pandemic. At Queen's, we are committed to facilitating debate and discussion on key issues impacting society. The recovery from the effects of COVID-19 will present widespread challenges, requiring international collaboration and cooperation on a truly global scale. I am therefore delighted to welcome our keynote speaker on this important issue, a Queen's Honorary Graduate, Professor Dame Henrietta Moore. Dame Henrietta is the Founder and Director of the Institute for Global Prosperity and the Chair in Culture, Philosophy and Design at University College London. As a leading global thinker in prosperity, she challenges traditional economic models of growth, arguing that for communities, businesses and governments to flourish, they need to engage with diversity and work within environmental limits. We look forward to hearing her reflections on how the world can recover from COVID-19. Dermot O'Donovan, Professor of Global Health at Queen's and Honorary Consultant in Public Health at the Public Health Agency in Northern Ireland, will respond to Dame Henrietta's address. Dermot has lived and worked in several countries in Africa and his main research and teaching interests relate to sustainable development and health equity and inclusion locally and globally. Finally, I'm delighted that Anne Watt, Director of Pivotal, Northern Ireland's Public Policy Forum, which focuses on evidence-based ideas and policies to improve society, economy and public services, will then lead the Q&A session. I know that you will all find this event both stimulating and informative, and I would encourage you to submit questions to our speakers via the Q&A function. At Queen's, we're planning further future events, providing opportunities for evidence-based debate and discussion around the global response to the pandemic. Without further delay, I would now like to hand over to Dame Henrietta Moore. Thank you, Vice-Chancellor. Uh, it's a great pleasure to be here with you this afternoon at Queen's. Um, I'm enormously proud of my connection with Queen's and I don't have the opportunity to visit you enough. And so although we're doing this virtually today, I am very, very pleased to have the opportunity to discuss these important issues with you. Now, for those of you who don't know about the Institute for Global Prosperity, we're primarily concerned with redesigning prosperity for the 21st century. 
And our current thinking is focused on how to repurpose our economy to deliver quality of life, secure livelihoods and economic and social well-being for people and the planet. And our work is really all about inequalities, understanding them better and tackling them more effectively. But what does this mean in the context of COVID, where prosperity is a global goal? How can we use this opportunity to rebuild a better future with a redefined version of prosperity for people and planet? Now, as we meet today, after a raft of failures, the UK is congratulating itself on a successful vaccinating program, while India is consumed by crisis. But we still don't seem to be recognizing that the pandemic won't be controlled until it is controlled everywhere. Developed economies must provide the assistance the developing economies and emerging markets need, because without it, the global pandemic will persist longer than it otherwise should. Global inequalities will grow, and there will be continuing global divergence. So let's start with where we stand now before we go into some of the possible solutions. So after nearly a quarter century uh, of steady global declines in extreme poverty to historically unprecedented levels, there's been a very sudden reversal. The World Bank's projections suggest that in 2020, between 88 million and 115 million people could fall back into extreme poverty as a result of the pandemic with an additional increase of between 23 million and 35 million in 2022. This represents the first increase in extreme poverty since 1998. And those falling back into extreme poverty as a result of the COVID-19 crisis, what we might call the new poor, have certain distinctive characteristics. They're mostly urban and they're mostly working either in services or in the informal economy. And so we need targeted policies focused on their specific needs. Now, 2020 also saw the first ever decline in the Human Development Index since it was introduced in 1990. Children and youth, so young people between the ages of 15 and 24, together account for about two thirds of the global poor. And UNESCO estimates that around 23 million children, adolescents and youth are at risk of not returning to care centres, schools or universities in 2021. And the majority of those live in sub-Saharan Africa. So the pandemic has left us with a huge problem around generational injustice. We need to take care of our future generations, but not just in terms of how they manage in today's problems, but how will they manage and how can we help them manage to navigate tomorrow's challenges. So this graph that you see in front of you now shows that most of the new poor are at the extreme poverty line, as well as at, most of the new poor at the extreme poverty line live in South Asia. The World Bank estimates that 60% of people pushed into extreme poverty by COVID will be resident in South Asia. When we look at the higher poverty lines, the regional distribution of the added poor does change markedly. Of the 225 million people expected to be pushed into poverty at $3.20, two-thirds are in South Asia. But of the 209 million expected to be pushed into poverty at $5.50, many of these newly poor people are in East Asia and the Pacific, but very few are in Sub-Saharan Africa. Now, this is because, of course, Sub-Saharan Africa has very large numbers of the poor to begin with. 
But the important point to take away from this slide <clears throat> is that many of the people who were doing well around the world are now going backwards. If we look a bit at labor, what's happening to labor? An estimated 14% of working hours, equivalent to around 400 million full-time jobs, have been lost worldwide <clears throat> between the last quarter of 2019 and the second quarter of 2020 as a result of the pandemic. In the fourth quarter, global working hours declined by about 4.6%, which is equivalent to 130 million full-time jobs. The latest labor force survey data reveal the contrast between massive job losses in hard hit sectors, such as accommodation and food services, arts and culture, retail and construction, and the positive growth evident in a number of higher skilled service sectors, such as information and communication, and of course, financial and insurance activities. And this divergence between types of employment will increase inequality within countries. The World Bank has suggested that nearly 80% of the 1.6 billion workers in the informal economy worldwide have faced lockdowns and slowdowns in industries ranging from wholesale and retail distribution, food and hospitality, tourism and transport to manufacturing. And within that sector, what we see, or those sectors, what we see is that women have been particularly affected by this, with 540 million women in informal employment around the world and mostly in these poorly paid service sectors. The other thing that I think we need to take into account here is that automation is going to be the response to many of the problems of um, service delivery that we've seen. And this means that the kinds of areas or sectors of employment, which we had previously thought of as being immune to rapid automation, may not find themselves immune to such automation. And this will mean that the demand for labor across economies is likely to shift in ways that we cannot quite uh, understand at the present time. So let's look at food. So experts estimate that the pandemic could double the number of people suffering from severe food and or nutrition insecurity. The World Food Programme estimates that an additional 130 million people will fall into severe food insecurity and malnutrition due to COVID-19. And this is not surprising because one of the first and most potentially destructive coping strategies when you have a loss of income or work is to reduce your food consumption. And in seven countries uh, this year in Latin America and the, Carib and the Caribbean, more than 40% of people surveyed reported running out of food during lockdowns. Now, depending on the duration and severity, the impact of reduced food intake on children's health can be very marked, particularly, of course, on their cognitive development. And this has a long-term impact on future human capital accumulation, as well, of course, as the impact of food insecurity on adult health and adult productivity at the present time. We all know that food and nutrition insecurity is on the rise right across the globe, I mean, both in the United States, but also in Europe. Uh, in the United Kingdom, more than 500,000 children were food short during the current lockdowns. And there are devastating levels of food insecurity in sub-Saharan Africa and South Asia. This is partly because the pandemic disrupted global food supply chains and markets, re-emphasizing again the fragility of our global food system. 
And during the pandemic, food has spoiled in shockingly large quantities because it could not reach the people who needed it. And the world really does need to invest in solutions leading to more resilient food systems that can withstand costly and deadly shocks like the pandemic, but also, of course, like conflict uh, and the impact of severe weather events with climate change. And to stop these events escalating into major crises of various kinds. Now, the next slide shows you something. It gives you food as an example, but what it shows is that the COVID crisis is not just a health crisis, but what I would call a cascading set of failures that have managed to snap all the links in a series of rather weak chains. So overwhelming the intersection points across a set of interconnected systems, including finance, food, transport, and employment. And so when we see these things in this way, we understand that the COVID pandemic is an opportunity to take a whole systems approach to our future, to look at the intersections between complex systems like food, transport, water, health, finance, and so on, and to focus on how to make those systems more robust, but also to focus on how we can create positive interconnections between them that enhance resilience and stability. And I call this cascading the positive. In other words, it's the opposite of the cascading failures that have created the COVID crisis itself. And building scenarios of how to cascade the positive is an important task to enable future planning and delivery and recovery post-pandemic. Now, around the world, there are marked differences in how the pandemic has been managed, both in terms of how successful countries have been in maintaining the health of their citizens and their economies, and also in the magnitude of the inequalities uh, that have resulted. Now, there are many reasons for these differences. Of course, the pre-existing state of health care and health inequalities, a country's preparedness and the resiliency of the economy, the quality of public response, including reliance on science and expertise, citizens' trust in government, and how citizens have balanced their individual freedoms to do as they pleased with their respect for others, recognising that their actions generate externalities. But each nation, I think, has had its own unique resources, knowledge, competencies and capabilities. And you will all know much of that from reading the newspaper. Um, <clears throat> but surprisingly, some poorer countries did much better than richer countries. So, for example, Senegal, because of their experience with managing HIV and Ebola, they did much better in managing the social responses to the COVID pandemic. And part of that was because they had the existing social networks in place that they could quickly use to respond. But we do see, of course, that the basic support to economies, so things like business support, the so-called furlough scheme uh, for the United Kingdom, much more, it's been much easier to do for higher income countries than for poorer countries. And that has a knock-on effect on the wider national economy. So when we turn to look at the economy, we can see that the uh, International Monetary Fund is estimating that uh, there will be a 3.5% contraction in global GDP this year. And that's going to be the deepest global recession since the Second World War. And as a comparison on the slide, you can see that during the global financial crisis in 2009, 
world economic output fell by only around 0.1%, although, of course, that number did hide huge differences between countries. And this graph compares the economic contraction as a result of the great lockdown in 2020 with the global financial crisis of 2009. So the pandemic has pushed Africa into its first recession in 25 years. And uh, this year, real GDP per capita is expected to contract by above 3% in sub-Saharan Africa. And by the end of 2021, it's likely to have regressed to its 2008 level. So countries are being, and their economies are being pushed back uh, by a considerable uh, um, number of years. And that pushback will have to be made up. So following on from um, an already precarious situation before the pandemic, the debt to GDP ratio in developing countries is expected to rise in the years ahead. And this will increase the threat to financial sustainability. Now, debt servicing itself is a problem for lower income countries um, because it reduces um, the investment they can make in other things, particularly in public services and in critical infrastructures. So for example, prior to the pandemic, 64 lower income countries were spending more on debt repayments than on the health and well-being of their populations. Ghana, for example, spends roughly four times more on servicing its public debt, much of it to rich nations, than it does on health care for its own people. So these debt-related strains will add to broader social fractures around the unequal sharing of crisis and recovery burdens. Um, across income, group, occupation, region, age, gender, ethnicity, and geography. And some recent research has suggested that it would cost African governments about 7.7 billion US dollars to purchase the vaccines needed for the continent's population, whereas payments to private creditors by African countries in 2021 are expected to be over three times this amount. So debt is a huge problem. But it's not just about exacerbating existing inequalities. It's also about the fact that the pandemic is changing the character and the landscape of inequalities globally. And that's an important point that we need to think about. So exposure to work-related health risks, which we've already talked a little bit about, and Conversely, opportunities for distance work and distance learning are heavily skewed in favour of older, better paid, better educated and wealthier groups. Precarious gig economy and informal workers in denser and substandard rented housing with greater underlying health burdens are also much more financially exposed to layoffs and less easily reached by the public safety nets. That's been very evident in the UK itself, as well as across the world. Globally, female-owned businesses are worth around almost six percentage points more likely to have closed their businesses than male-owned businesses during the lockdowns. And in all regions of the world, there's a marked gender gap in business closure rates, as women entrepreneurs have been disproportionately affected not only by the contraction in economic activities as a result of COVID-19, but also by the increased burdens um, of homeschooling and of uh, work, domestic work at home. 
So COVID-19 and the resulting lockdowns have also managed to trigger, as we were all realizing, and especially today since we're doing this globally, a mass migration from analog to digital in one way or another. Um, and of course, this highlights the fact that the internet is crucial for socioeconomic inclusion everywhere. And yet half of the world's population still does not have access to the internet, either through a mobile device or through a fixed line broadband. Patterns of deglobalization and rising self-protection instincts with, inside nation states are being reflected in the tensions which are emerging, not only around multilateral uh, collaboration, but also between groups within nations. Faith in globalization had already really been profoundly eroded before the pandemic, but it's been more, um, come under much more uh, sustained scrutiny, especially by large middle-class cohorts whose real incomes have been left behind since the 2000s and who have become much more fragile or vulnerable uh, to a risk of falling into poverty because of the pandemic. And so there is a, a disenchantment and a growing vulnerability amongst and between different groups. And in many situations around the world, we can see that this is encouraging strongly illiberal and nation first uh, narratives of all kinds. <clears throat> and this has not been helped, of course, by a sort of protracted underinvestment, particularly in the global economies, in public services, which have worked to partially undermine the social contract between citizens and the government. And the corrosive effects of undermining that social contract have now been laid bare by COVID-19. Now, in light of the challenges of COVID, climate change and global inequality, a number of national and regional organizations from around the world have suddenly announced that poverty is their, uh, that prosperity is their overarching goal or focus. For example, the World Bank has a focus on shared prosperity when measured by income. And one of the World Bank's two main goals is to ensure that relatively poor people in all societies are participating in and benefiting from economic gains. Now, the World Bank's definition of shared prosperity um, involves uh, looking at mechanisms for boosting the incomes of the poorest 40% of people in every country. Now, as a set of actions right now, this is going to be a real challenge, even if we only measure prosperity in terms of income and wealth. Because current projections indicate, and as I've suggested throughout this talk, that shared prosperity will drop sharply in nearly all economies in the world in 2021 and 2022, as the pandemic's economic burden is felt across the entire income distribution and will likely drop more because the impact will be disproportionately felt by those whose incomes are already very low. Now, the United Nations um, uh, Sustainable Development Goals <coughs> excuse me, are based on the five P's of people, planet, peace and prosperity and partnership. And the aim is the stated aim of them is to ensure that all human beings can enjoy prosperous and fulfilling lives and that economic, social and technological progress will occur in the future in harmony with nature. 
these kinds of statements are very common. So the, the Brookings Institute has written a series of COVID policy responses for the Biden-Harris government called A Time for Renewal and Prosperity, which tries to detail innovative um, federal policy action and ideas focused on racial justice and worker mobility, economic growth and dynamism, domestic and international governance, international security and climate and resilience. And here in the UK, the Coalition for Global Prosperity are calling for a UK-led health and green debt initiative, which would offer debt relief to the world's poorest nations and free up those vital funds to pay for vaccinations and tackle climate change that I've already uh, referred to. But we have to be very alert when policymakers and think tanks and so on talk about prosperity and interrogate what they might actually mean and then be alive to the way that they formulate the relationship between their definition of prosperity and what they actually plan to do. In other words, what is prosperity and what are the pathways towards prosperity in concrete terms? It's always worth interrogating whether there is substance to these pronouncements and plans. After all, prosperity also features uh, on jo Boris Johnson's Brexit coin, which is in the center of the slide in front of you. Now, taking this into account, in the IGP, we're concerned with how a redesigned prosperity opens the door, not just to innovative ideas, but to new practices, allowing us to address inequalities in novel ways. The broad brush of prosperity must be about the relationship between individual lives, their quality, aspiration and purpose, and the larger systems and constraints within which they're embedded. So what does prosperity comprise and embrace for whom, when and where? In contemporary societies, questions of scale and scope are simultaneously matters of politics. And one of the challenges here is how we think about the economy and what it does for people. Many people around the world feel disconnected from any chance of prosperity and trust in government policy is at an all-time low. There are some good ideas out there. So let's take, for example, um, some of the, the terms that have been bandied around recently, so Build Back Better, the Great Reset, the Green New Deal, the Inclusive Growth, all of these things. These are terms that are animating public debate as we struggle to reframe and manage the fractured relationship between politics and economics. Now, these terms have variable purpose and very localized uh, inflections, but they crop up all across the globe. And one of these terms is the Great Reset. This came out of the uh, World Economic Forum uh, in 2021. And the three basic objectives of the Great Reset uh, are, first of all, the creation of stakeholder capitalism, which will replace shareholder capitalism. So the idea that companies will work for the common good rather than from immediate, for immediate profits and benefits. The construction of a more resilient, equitable and sustainable system based on new environmental, social, and governance metrics. And third, the harnessing of innovations from the fourth industrial revolution for the public good, nourishing greener, smarter, and fairer growth. Now, all of this is good, but the focus is still on growth and growth in the economy, growth in global economies, growth in national economies. And it's widely recognized that the pursuit of constantly augmented growth is not sustainable. 
in, this, in, the, in, in the context of limited planetary resources, and nor does it provide us with an appropriate pathway for addressing today's pressing challenges of inequality, environmental degradation, and climate change. And yet from the World Bank down to local governments in the UK, inclusive growth is still being championed in the post-COVID recovery. It seems that there's been very little shift in the conventional understanding of policy frameworks. Um, and very little attention, actually, to the quality of ordinary people's lives. And even when we think about something like inclusive growth, that's not radical enough. That's still about growth and then working out how people can be included in it. And as one commentator said, it's hard to disagree with the notion of inclusive growth, but the danger is that it becomes a kind of placebo, helping policymakers feel they're doing the right things, but without leading to meaningful change. And the UK government's levelling up agenda, as revealed in the Queen's speech this week, was very long on growth and very short on details for ordinary people. So what's needed is a redefinition of prosperity that's less concerned with aggregate economic wealth and growth and more attentive to the things that people care about and need, secure and good quality livelihoods, good public services, a clean and healthy environment, planetary and ecosystem health, a political system that allows everyone to be heard and the ability to have rich social and cultural lives. So because many of today's pressing challenges are global in scale and, scale and relevance, we have to remember, though, that they translate into locally specific effects on ordinary people and their lives. And so the responses that address these problems must therefore, at least in part, be locally driven guided by very context-specific visions of prosperity and the good life, and led by actors with skills and knowledge that are sensitized to specific contexts and supported by community members committed to improving the places where, where they live. Now, research at the IGP has examined how we might redefine prosperity for the 21st century by working with local communities across the world to understand what prosperity means for them. And you see the models in front of you for for um, Tanzania, uh, for Lebanon, and for the UK. And the UK's prosperity model is divided into five domains, which are on the slide in front of you. And these five domains are identified through a process involving the critical evaluation of existing well-being and human development indices at national and international levels, combined with a process of qualitative co-design with local communities. And the operationalization of the prosperity framework therefore provides a new and innovative approach to analyzing the lived experience of local livelihoods and of communities and sets them though within these interlocking systems and structures that make up uh, the constraints within which we all have to lead our lives. So when we'd worked, uh, for example, with the prosperity index in London, we found that a secure livelihood was consistently identified as the most important factor to people's prosperity in East London. So while secure income and good quality of work were described as vital, people also explained how livelihood security depends on several overlapping factors. Yes, good quality work that provides a reliable and adequate income, but also affordable quality housing, access to public services and social and economic inclusion. So when we speak of livelihood security, we speak of the infrastructure of services, resources, and participation 
that contributes to someone's ability to get by and lead the life that they want. So what can be done to achieve prosperity globally? Um, well, COVID-19 pandemic <clears throat> is the first of these global pandemics of modern times, but it's very unlikely uh, to be the last. And this is because of its root causes um, and connections to climate change uh, and to uh, land acquisition and urbanization and so on, so on and so forth. And as we grapple with the enormity of building back better or leveling up from this calamity, many of the most effective and cheapest solutions may actually lie in protecting, conserving and restoring nature. These nature-based solutions, as they're known, both harness the diversity and resilience of nature to address the health and economic dimensions of this crisis, or could do so, while at the same time maintaining and restoring the stability and diversity of the Earth's natural ecosystems and climate upon which human prosperity so heavily depends. So I've tried to offer some ideas for how we might begin to think about pathways to global prosperity. Society needs more than a recovery or a return to previous norms if we're to see the other side of this very challenging moment. We require, I think, an absolute renewal and reimagining of all of society and its values. Global problems ultimately require global solutions, which underscore the need for cooperation and coordination at all levels and for giving full support to organizations and procedures that are designed to serve precisely this purpose. The question is how we should build them. But I think a global vision for prosperity cannot be achieved without recognition of local context and difference. Definitions of prosperity and pathways towards prosperity have to be citizen-led and deeply embedded in place and in culture and in context. And definitional challenges aside, the, the approach to prosperity has to be pragmatic, operational and embedded, one that actually brings about improvements in people's quality of life wherever they are situated. Building resilience starts with securing livelihoods, as I've suggested, for individuals and communities so that they can get by and build on their own capacities and capabilities. The pandemic has deepened the global hunger and malnutrition crisis, but it has also, I think, revealed a pathway forward. The need for governments, aid organizations and activists on the ground to build resilient systems. A better understanding of the intersection and integration of agriculture, health, finance, food systems, nutrition and so on has never been more important. Recognizing the interconnections between human and planetary prosperity. Prosperity is one of these grand challenges, and as such, it is not a problem that can be solved, but actually a process, a process of continuous innovation that will always require adaptation, new innovation, and of course, co-design with citizens. So I hope you've been encouraged today to look forward to some of these opportunities available to us to achieve a sustainable prosperity globally for everyone as we come out of this uh, COVID-19 pandemic. And thank you all very much for listening to me. And now it's my great pleasure to hand over to Professor O'Donovan. Thanks very much, Professor Moore, and thanks for inviting me to take part today. Um, I work in global health, which is defined as an area of study, research and practice that places a priority on improving health and achieving health equity for all people worldwide. It's not just about healthcare, but it's about the underlying determinants of health, the factors that influence our health, the conditions in which we live 
where we're born, how we grow, learn, work, live and age. And global and global health that we've talked already is not about just, it's more about the scope of issues and not about just the location. Um, deeply interconnected to social development, to economic growth, um, to the wider environment and to human rights and dignity. As was mentioned earlier, I've also been seeing COVID-19 from a public health practice perspective because I work part-time as a consultant in public health in the Public Health Agency in Northern Ireland. And I'm also in regular contact with colleagues in other parts of the world about their experiences. We're not beyond coronavirus, the title of this series. Indeed, we're into what the British Academy has described as the COVID decade. Um, thousands of people are still dying every day. Um, and this varies a lot around the world. The daily news from India is reminding us how much the world is still in the throes of and possibly the worst yet to come, this pandemic. And many low and middle income countries are at the beginning of a second or third wave. And as Professor Moore has shown, COVID has exposed deep inequalities and inequities. In most countries, the poorest and the most vulnerable have suffered most. It's not just exposed these, COVID has actually intensified and amplified these inequalities. Many of you will be aware of the publication yesterday of the report into the, the report of the independent panel on pandemic preparedness and response. It clearly describes what went wrong from a lack of global political leadership to years of poor preparation and underfunded public systems, even in the richest countries. It also describes what needs to be done immediately and in the coming months and years to correct these failures and gaps for the next crisis, because we know there will be another crisis. We have to think about what we measure in terms of preparedness. The Global Health Security Index assesses countries' capabilities and preparedness for major epidemics and pandemics and scores countries on a range of indicators. And while it found that no country is fully prepared, the countries that scored highest, the most prepared, who should have been able to deal best with this, were the US and the UK, countries that have been among the worst affected. So Einstein's supposed to have said, what can be counted doesn't necessarily count. What counts can't necessarily be counted. So we need to think about the metrics in terms of these sorts of issues. Here's a causal loop diagram published last year that aimed to explore some of the wicked complexity issues of the pandemic and its impact on socioeconomic systems and potential intervention points. Maybe a little difficult to see but we're now all familiar with these interventions and how they interact in all our lives. Looking at complexity, there's also growing recognition of COVID as a syndemic, an aggregation of interacting diseases and the social and environmental factors that promote and exacerbate the negative effects of these interactions. So COVID-19 is an infectious disease. It's interacting with a wide range of non-communicable diseases from obesity and heart disease and diabetes and chronic respiratory diseases and clustering these in specific populations linked to patterns of inequality that are deeply embedded in our societies. These aggregations then exacerbate and amplify the adverse effect of each of the diseases in turn. So to limit the harm, to recover and prepare for the future, we need to understand these links between the biological, the environmental, social, cultural, and political determinants of all of these conditions. And if we approach COVID-19 as a syndemic, 
we'll have a wider vision that brings together addressing inequalities in education, employment, housing, food, and in the environment that all impact on health and well-being. We're starting to see the impacts of COVID and other aspects of health and healthcare. Um, I spent some time with the World Health Organization in Nigeria and Sierra Leone during the Ebola crisis, very different responses. But we know that the disruption to the health systems and the society in West Africa led to dramatic increases in maternal and child deaths in the countries most affected. And estimates of the impact on COVID on maternal and child health suggest some really devastating impacts. And organizations like MSF um, find themselves working very differently. MSF is now working in 70 countries and they're providing services in high income countries like France and Germany and Switzerland for the first time. We've talked about build back better. And the phrase comes from the United Nations Framework for Disaster Risk Reduction, a strategy that was aimed at reducing the risks to people and communities and nations in the wake of disasters and shocks. And now, as we've heard, it's been used by multiple organizations and states. The OECD Build Back Better briefing describes the opportunities for recovery to link addressing the kinds of global emergencies that Professor Moore has talked about from environmental emergencies and climate change and biodiversity loss with behavior changes that will reduce the likelihood and impacts of future shocks and increase our abilities to cope with these things when they happen. And at the center of it all is a focus on well-being and inclusiveness. Sir Michael Marmot, a colleague of Professor Moore's, led the World Health Organization Commission on the Social Determinants of Health and subsequently produced a report on health inequalities in England in 2010. In February of 2020, he published a 10-year follow-up report that demonstrated while health had improved for many people, for some people, among women in the poorest communities in England, life expectancy had actually declined. His group has recently report this, produced this report on the impact of COVID on health inequalities. He describes how health inequalities in society lead to inequalities in health, leading to inequalities in COVID. So this graph shows the gradient in mortality according to areas of deprivation. And the COVID mortality, which is the light green in the middle, uh, parallels the gradient in wider society. This shows deaths by ethnic group in England relative to the white population. And similar situations have been described in the US and other countries. As was mentioned, the last event in this series focused on COVID vaccines. Access to these vaccines is going to be increasingly important for all of us. We've heard how no one is safe until everyone's safe. And yet to really get beyond coronavirus, we're going to need global herd immunity. So we need everyone everywhere to have access to vaccines. Look at where people are receiving vaccines now. When you factor into this that there have been cuts to aid budgets that are likely to have seriously negative effects on health and well-being, we're going to see widening gaps. When we look what happened in the past in terms of differences in access to HIV treatment, it's been estimated that there were up to 12 million excess deaths in Africa could have been avoided with earlier and more equitable access to treatment. Some of the good news in this front is that progress has been made on intellectual property rights around vaccines, but there's also a need to hugely increase capacity to produce them. 
And while some countries will have most of their populations vaccinated in the next few months, in others it's likely to take years. And while that's happening, we don't know how long the current vaccine immunity lasts. And there are concerns about the efficacy new variant of the, of the vaccines against new variants. Um, so if we don't contain the virus, we may run into other problems. On World Health Day last month, the World Health Organization launched a new campaign to build a fairer, healthier world. It defines health equity as the absence of unfair, avoidable and remediable differences in health states among groups of people. And it calls for more intersectoral working in education, agriculture, environment, infrastructure, finance and social protection to impact on these inequalities in health. It's also appropriate, excuse me, in this context to reflect on the inverse care law. And this was described 50 years ago this year by Julian Tudor Hart, who was a GP in the Welsh Valleys. He described how the availability of good medical care tends to vary inversely with the need for it in the population served. And recent commentaries on this for its 50th anniversary have redefined and described the disproportionate care law. We're seeing these kinds of inequities and disproportions writ large with COVID. And Sir Michael Marmot refers to proportionate universalism to address inequalities. To reduce the steepness of this social gradient, actions must be universal, but with a scale and intensity that's proportionate to the level of disadvantage. So we have to think about that in terms of global responses. And we can frame this in the context of human rights. If we bring human rights into health programming, we'll be thinking about the availability, accessibility, uh, acceptability and quality of health services with attention to the underlying determinants of health. And if we had a genuine rights-based approach, we'd be seeing health and rights as inextricably linked. We'd be assessing the impacts of policies and programs on health and taking account of the health impacts of violations of human rights. We'd be ensuring participation of people and communities and we'd be empowering. and We would truly be more equitable. We've heard about the Sustainable Development Goals as one framework for integrating sustainable development with improving health and inequalities and equity. And the core message of the Sustainable Development Goals is to leave no one behind. But if we truly want to do this, we need to examine what kind of society we want how we can really build back fairer and greener. Can we put the health of vulnerable older people and children who have been disproportionately affected at the centre of thinking? We've seen how really huge dramatic actions have taken place in the last year that would have been considered impossible. And overnight, there have been huge changes. So we need bold, creative innovations as we never have before. We mustn't go back to doing the things that led us to this. And as as Professor Moore said we need to be thinking about the cascade of the positive and maybe we put that in a syndemic way of looking at things. So thank you. I'll hand over to Anne to lead the discussion now. Well, good afternoon, everyone. Can I start by saying thank you very much to Professor Henrietta Moore and Professor Dermot O'Donovan for their talks, really challenging, informative evidence-rich um, information for us to consider about such important topics. 
Um, we're going to move into the Q&A session now. Thank you to those who have submitted their questions already. Lots of questions have come in, so thank you for those. Um, please do participate now if you can. Um, you can submit your questions in the panel on the screen and I will put them to the speakers. So we'd love to get uh, lots of different questions, a variety of questions and get a good discussion going here. Um, just to introduce myself briefly, my name's Anne Watt. I'm the director of Pivotal, which is an independent public policy think tank for Northern Ireland. And I'm delighted to have been invited by Queen's to chair this Q&A session today. So we're going to start off with a um, question from uh, Salvo to start with. So thank you, Salvo, for your question. Um, I think in the first instance, this is a question for Professor Moore. Um, you talked about the burden of debt on emerging um, and developing economies and how that was going to be restrictive on them as they uh, had other areas where they needed to spend, for example, on vaccines, on public health measures, on recovery from COVID economically. Um, Salvo asks, campaigners have been calling for debt relief for decades now with limited success. Do you think the pandemic will change the North's political support for debt relief? So just um, to Professor Burr, please. Well, it's a, thank you for that question. It was a, it's, a, it's a great question. And it's a little like the point that uh, Professor O'Donovan made, which is that we've suddenly seen in this pandemic lots of old pieties thrown on the bonfire. So things like you can't print money um, and you can't just give people money and all these sorts of things. You know, the, the, the ideas about um, uh, monetary policy and so on have all changed quite a lot. And I think there is a renewed uh, well, I know there's a renewed set of actions to get debt relief. And I also know that there's a great pushback against it. And I think the pushback comes uh, in part from two quite separate areas. One is the it comes from an ideological position that says that people should pay their debts, that they shouldn't just be allowed to get away with it. Right. But I think that that's a, you know, that's a misunderstanding of how long-term systemic inequalities within the world system have resulted in this debt building up and also how richer countries benefit from having poorer countries indebted to them in all sorts of ways, including binding them to them for trade purposes and all sorts of other things. Um, and I think the other reason, the other misunderstanding it, 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 it comes from is it's very short-sighted. So it doesn't take account of the fact that um, countries which are less resilient in terms of the response to climate change, the response to human health, as we heard from uh, Professor Donovan and so on, will likely be more costly for everyone globally into the future. So we have to push for it. But whether we'll change the ill politics, mm -mm, always a hard one. And a question which is, I suppose, has a, a linkage to that. Um, is there, a, and this is a question for both speakers, so I might, I'll start with Professor O'Donovan for this one. Um, is there a genuine desire now to look beyond our own boundaries in recovery, perhaps in, in terms of thinking about debt relief as in the previous question? So is there a desire to look beyond our own boundaries in recovery or do the lessons from the past, for example, AIDS deaths in Africa versus the USA, tell us nothing has really changed? So do you think... We will look beyond our own boundaries now, Professor O'Donovan. It's really difficult to answer. I mean, UK aid has been cut from 0.7% to 0.5% in 
who I think it's something like 4.5 billion, um, and the cuts are primarily on issues like you know, water, health, and other essential services. So that's happening in this context. So that's happening while you have, as you said, uh, an increased d- demand that we will do things differently, but there, there's a real tension there. Professor Moore, would you like to answer that one? Do you think we are going to look more beyond our own boundaries? Well, I think I think perhaps we are. Um, it could partly, partly be a generational thing. I think the younger people under the age of 30 see themselves more readily as both local and global citizens, whereas I think many people, <clears throat> perhaps over the age of 60 and some of the uh, ageing uh, countries of the world, which of course includes the UK, <laughs> um, actually see themselves as primarily uh, local or national, and that those identities at the moment are being fanned by a particular kind of politics that that, that we can see everywhere in, right across the media. But I think the younger generation are resistant to that kind of thing, and they and they have, a, I think, an understanding of the importance of planetary boundaries, which is something that the older generation lacks. And so they recognize the importance of global co- uh, cooperation to manage uh, those planetary boundaries. And just to follow that up, um, a question that responds, I think, to the last couple of answers. Um, the UK government speaks of levelling up at home, and that's very much in the um, public discourse at the minute and uh, you know, high-level political commitments to levelling up, but at the same time, as you've mentioned, has cut overseas aid. So how could the UK government, or indeed any government, be persuaded that levelling up at home is impossible when you're not actually being a, a responsible global citizen as a richer country? Well, I think that the, uh, the the two things tend to go together, interestingly enough. And I think it's about understanding what should be the goal of government policy. And my view is that there's always too much talk about let's have more growth in the economy or let's have high technology solving our problems for us. And I think we have to be careful here. So, for example, investment in high technology for levelling up in the UK or moving the infrastructure bank to Leeds is not going to have much impact on ordinary people's lives. So, for example, we're in danger of becoming an economy like Nigeria, where the oil industry is about 60% of GDP and employs 1% of the population. So we keep thinking about having new technology that's going to bring new jobs, but actually the number of jobs it will bring will be very, very small because it will be highly automated and highly specialized. So whilst that technological development is important, you have to think about what's happening to ordinary people. And I think if you think about that, then you can, you can put that framework across both your national and your international work. But whilst you're fantasizing about what economies will do, you don't stand much chance. Mm. Professor O'Donovan, do you want to come in on that one about levelling up? I suppose the, the, the other element of that is about just po- policy coherence. I mean, the, the international development policy, um, the UK international development policy from a few years ago talked about in our common interest. So the, 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 there's something about home and common interest for the rest of the world that, that, that there's a disconnect for many people that we, we need to do more to make that clearer. And as Professor Moore says, 
there is a growing group, particularly younger people, who see these connections. But there's a lot, there's a long way to go in terms of advocacy and um, influencing. Okay, thank you. Um, a question here about the speed of the pandemic and the and our lack of preparedness and the impacts of that. So the question is, did the speed of the pandemic and our lack of preparedness dictate the disparity in impacts in terms of the unequal impacts, or was it just a byproduct of looking after our own that, that kind of mentality of not looking beyond our own borders? by world leaders. So was it a lack of preparedness? Was it the speed of the, the at which the pandemic spread? Or was it about um, having a rather insular approach? Um, start with Professor Moore. Well, I think that, you know, everybody knew this pandemic was coming. We even had a national plan for it in the United Kingdom, which we didn't implement. We didn't even attempt to implement or follow. Um, and we couldn't, of course, because we'd already cut the health service to the bone. So we actually had no slack in the system at all. And one of the interesting things is that the pandemic wasn't terribly quick, if you think about it. I mean, we knew that people were dying in large numbers in China. We knew what was going on. We sat around saying, well, this can't happen to us. I mean, this is not going to come here. I mean, it's actually something happening elsewhere. You know, not going to happen. Um, so I think there was a great deal of, of self-satisfied thinking and a great deal of lack of preparedness. Um, and then, of course, an inability to turn other systems quickly, which is what the pandemic response was all about, to pro producing the kinds of things that you need in a pandemic. So, you know, it's still a complete mystery to me, for example. We had all these Nightingale hospitals, which were sort of tented arrangements all across England, anyway, the ones I saw were in England. And then the next thing we knew when we had the second pandemic at the end at the at the end of the summer was that they'd all been closed. So, you know, I mean, so I think there were a series of a series of policy mistakes which came in part from arrogance. Professor O'Donovan, do you want to come in on that one? The report that I mentioned that was published yesterday, you know, the the the, the independent report talks about the month of February last year as being a lost month that it was clear what was coming and that action wasn't taken in so many places, that so many countries were waiting and seeing. Um, and as Professor Moore says, like there are plans, most countries in the world have had plans since in the aftermath of SARS, the international health regulations have been, you know, there's been a whole lot of things put in place. But as I said, the, the metrics that told us, you know, who was most prepared didn't reflect what happened. So, Maybe it was too too much focused on the health and health system, and not all the other impacts that are going you know, would happen in this sort of as we've learned, um, and that for the future we need to think about all the interactions between the wider society and the economy, the whole thing around information and how information flows, um, and how to deal with the 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 active misinformation um, that slowed down some of the response. Yeah, thank you. Um, can I just encourage our viewers um, and uh, viewers to participate by giving us questions? So do put in questions into the box on the screen and I'll put them to the speakers. So, um, Professor Moore, you talked um, a lot about redefining prosperity for the 21st century. Um, and a question here from Andy. Is the redefinition of prosperity actually bringing us round to the 
um, old school happiness index, he asked. Well, not entirely, Andy, because um, one of the problems about the happiness index and indeed about the work that we do on sort of um, whether or not people have um, a sense of uh, self-assessed uh, happiness or well-being. So, for example, again, just speaking of what the Office of National Statistics does in England. So it, it goes around asking cohorts of people every year, you know, do you feel happier today than you felt yesterday? There's a, there's a, there's a series of sort of six questions that are asked. Um, and uh, the problem is that right across the UK, everyone pretty much says that they're all just as happy as each other. Uh, in other words, what that shows us is that in terms of the, the data, that this is not a very... Um, it's not a tool with a great deal of leverage. We can't do much with it. So, you you know, you could be living in Kensington and Chelsea where you die at 89, or you could be living in one of the fishing communities in England and you die at 74, and you're just as happy as Larry. It doesn't make, doesn't make any difference that this is happening to you. Um, now, okay, part of that could be that, you know, people adjust to circumstance and so on and so forth. There are lots of technical issues there. But the main issue, I think, is to understand something that I said in the talk that's really important, which is to understand whether or not you're talking about self-evaluation or, or objective measures of issues to do with prosperity. You have to set people's the experience of life, of the life as you live it, and as people live it in community, in the context of these major constraints which are shaping people's lives. But you have to understand those big processes from the bottom up because there's no point about talking them from the top down because then you never actually reach the people concerned. So that's the, the point I was making. So it's not about just about happiness. It's about, and therefore it's not just about social progress either, which has been another idea that's been put forward because we have to understand what are these big constraints which are which are sort of global things like deindustrialization, but also infrastructural constraints. Thank you. Um, I'm going to put the next one first of all to Professor O'Donovan. So um, this is from uh, Dr. Carl Wright. So Dr. Carl Wright asks: uh, OECD states 100 of 169 sustainable development goal targets require local implementation. Does this also require strongly decentralised and empowered local and city government? I guess absolutely. Um, and that's part of the, there's even a goal about cities and communities. Um, so that goes back to what Professor Moore is talking about in terms of communities have to own and be able to take things forward. So that's clearly something that's really important. Yeah. Professor Murray, do you want to add anything on that one? No, I think I think maybe not. But the I think the importance here is to understand the kind of actions that we could be taking locally. So there are quite a number of actions that we could be taking, which would make a huge difference to people's quality of life, um, and would also produce employment for people in local circumstances. And we. We don't take a whole system approach to understanding that. So let me give you an example. One of the problems we have in the United Kingdom at the moment is that we have too many children who are cold, so their cognitive development is impaired, and we have too many elderly who are cold. And we give those individuals, the elderly anyway, sums of money in the winter to try and be warmer, and they're still cold, and that's very, very expensive. 
But what we haven't done is said to ourselves, okay, so let's have a different approach to this. Let's imagine that nobody ever gets a heating bill ever again. Let's retrofit the houses. Let's sort out the problem of the energy distribution. Let's create the jobs that will enable us to do that. Let's make local communities, allow local communities to get involved in solving those, those problems and using those kinds of skills, which can be developed in the community for improving directly quality of life at the local level. I mean, it could make a huge difference to certain parts of the UK, including Northern Ireland. And there's a really practical question here, which builds on that a little bit or builds on, on the, the local dimension. So Torres says, I'm neither a scholar nor an activist yet. Uh, and I'm very grateful for the chance to listen today. So there's some appreciation for our speakers. Um, but Torres says, I'm now left wondering what can the average citizen do? And maybe many of us are thinking that as we watch and listen today. What can the average citizen do? Well, I think the average citizen can do a whole lot. Um, and I think one of the first things that average citizens might want to do is to complain more <laughs> and participate more. <laughs> um, you know, I think that the, you know, if we look at what's gone on, for example, in certain parts of, um, let's say, in those parts of deprived parts of London where I have been working with my team, so one of the things there that lots and lots of local communities have sorted out is how to have better quality of food at a cheaper rate coming into local community-run supermarkets direct from farmers. And this is already beginning to sort out some problems because the other problem is that the big supermarkets force down the price of food, which means that farmers can't afford to really run the farm anymore. Uh, and also control access to the food. So these community-based supermarkets have been a way in which people have been able to say, okay, we are choosing to try to sort out better quality of food for our families at a, at a lower price. And it does require um, support, but this kind of food security is, is necessary now because actually we have very, very large numbers of people in the United Kingdom who are food insecure. Yep, so an encouragement there to be more challenging, more involved, more complaining yeah. um, at, at a local level. Do, um, Professor O'Donovan, what's your, what are your thoughts on that? What can a, a really big question, a really practical question, what can an average person do? Across the board, there's lots of individual things that people can do about all the different things that, that, that we've talked about, you know, in, in terms of energy, jobs, and all of those sorts of things. But there's, there, uh, so there's engaging with politicians I mean, it sounds it sounds very difficult. I mean, the, the, there's so there's so much happening that seems to be going against what we're talking about. But it, there's also a big a groundswell that there will be change. I mean, look look at the attention that the young people's attitude to climate has had over the last couple of years in terms of your shifting ways of thinking. We're likely to see something like that hopefully in the in the in the next year or two, um, in the aftermath. Of, if it is an aftermath of this, it is something that's going to go on and on. As I said, there is a report called the COVID decade where we have to look at all the other things that have come. So I think there's a challenge for all of us there to, to even though we're only individuals, we can have an influence in our own uh, communities mm -hmm. and perhaps through the jobs that we do, that there's lots of, the, lots of ways that we can be complaining more. I like that, complaining more. Mm -hmm. um, so we should do more challenging and more complaining. Mm -hmm. um, just to go back, Professor Rohr, to what you talked about the impact 
the economic impact on on um, emerging and developing countries. Um, and we saw how they're you know they've, they've had falls in output for the first time in many years. Is mm. are those falls in outcut? output are they recoverable from um or are there scarring effects that are going to make that very difficult um no i think i think they are recoverable but i think there are there are also scarring effects and the and, and the way to deal with those scarring effects is actually to think very hard about um whole system change so let's take something like you know the ethiopian highlands for example i mean there there are some very very good examples of local communities coming together to um engage in new forms of agroecology and land management to regenerate the soils to plant trees to therefore improve farmer livelihood bring more money into people's homes and that of course has a direct impact on the number of um people going to school has an impact also on early marriage for young women uh, and a whole set of new uh, new consequences follow from thinking about how we can regenerate the context in which we we live in and i think that there's a a lot of that is important because quite a lot of the policies that are that are taken forward in governments don't have much impact for local people at local levels and i mean i know i've said this several times today but it's very very important to realize that you know i don't know how many of how many people who are resident across the united kingdom as a whole realize that in county durham we have children going to school without any shoes in the 21st century i mean why do we have children going to school without shoes uh, this is this is actually not a huge problem to solve but it would require doing something different from just another pushing more on the kinds of policies we've had up to now so it's a question really of rethinking the approach yeah okay um we've got a couple of questions here about global institutions so i'm going to put these put these together and uh, to professor o'donovan first okay so first question is do global institutions need restructuring to give power to citizens of the global south if we're to make a just transition and then a second question which is on similar ground has the world health organization been undermined by the pandemic by sorry start that again has the world health organization been undermined in the pandemic by isolated national responses and what is its future in recovery and future resilience so two questions there about global institutions and then specifically about the world health organization so professor o'donovan first of all the, the second question first i mean who has definitely been undermined um but it, it looks like it's maybe recovering um who was in the aftermath of ebola there was an excoriating report about how WHO needed to be reformed and how things need to be done differently um and uh, the report the independent report that i mentioned yesterday talks about the, for the future that WHO needs to be the lead health organization um and that not only should it be the convener but it has to be the coordinator and lead and be able to you know, make changes but that requires going to the first question more power for all the global institutions um 
and that they're more representative, that they're they, there's all this whole discussion about decolonizing some of these global institutions, you know, that they're led from the global north, mainly employing people from the global north and all sorts of issues like that. So there's a whole debate and discussion there. Um, but clearly, I mean, for WHO, it, it, it has to take that place. And if it's not given that role, um, we're going to end up in trouble again. The, the, that report yesterday also talks about that it, it hopes it's not going to be yet another UN report that's going to end up gathering dust, that action has to be taken, or we'll be back in a similar situation, potentially worse, sometime in the future. Professor Moore? Well, it was it was an unedifying spectacle to find the United States removing money from the WHO in the middle of a global pandemic. Uh, and that was really a an ideological war going on between the United States and China. So this was this was foreign policy by other means. And very often I'm afraid that global institutions do get bound up in this foreign policy by other means. And this is partly because of the way in which they're funded. <coughs> Excuse me. But there's also been a very interesting suggestion um, in the last couple of years that instead of saying that we don't want globalization and that globalization is to blame for everything, we should just ask ourselves, okay, so what kind of globalization do we have? So currently we have a globalization which is dependent on trade and financial institutions and on out-resourcing various activities to poorer countries in order to be able to undercut your competitors and so on. <coughs> and this is what we think of as globalization. It's all about aspects of the economy. But why couldn't we have a globalization which, which put at the, the, at, the, at the core of it global health and said the only thing that really needs to hold all of the countries of the world together is a joined-up approach to global, to global health? Um, and the, you know, it's, it's an interesting, it's partly a think piece, but it's also partly an interesting idea because it shifts the question of what are the grounds of cooperation? What are the grounds of interaction between us from financial and economic extractive activities to a form of globalization, that, which is actually basically a productive uh, activity, creating value for the countries who are engaged in that process? Thank you. Um, to our viewers and listeners, this is your last couple of minutes for submitting questions. So if you do have a burning question, please do put it into the question function now and I will try to ask it to our speakers. So one has just come in from Paddy. Um, so the question from Paddy is, might the global reality of universal mortality and vulnerabilities that we've had due to the pandemic, might that lead to increased identifications and actions so might this universal i suppose global experience that we've had together of the of the pandemic admittedly as your talks have clearly shown in very different ways and very unequal ways but might that lead to greater action in the future professor o'donovan sincerely hope so um but what we're seeing at the moment you know even just thinking locally um People want the vaccine now for themselves um, and get the age, get it down to the age. Like we're, we're not thinking about the, the wider world and how that's going to impact. Um, that by, you know, it is important that everybody gets the vaccine, but by ensuring that everybody gets the vaccine here, somebody else isn't getting it somewhere else. And that's going to lead to increased risk 
ultimately for us all. Professor Moore? Yes, it's a it's a very good uh, a very good question, Paddy. I mean, I think there 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 is a lot of evidence that um, the the trauma of these kinds of experiences allows people to reconnect to emp to their empathy for others, to understand that other people are like them, and that similar things are happening. Um, I think a lot of people have empathised, for example, with what's been happening in India recently, because they've suddenly realised that they couldn't get into a hospital in the United Kingdom to see a parent who was desperately ill. And, you know, people in India can't either. And I think people un people understand that. And I also think people do understand that, you know, very often these tragedies are, are um, driven by failures of insight and governance. And I think people often feel very angry about that and they identify with the anger and loss of others as well. But bringing this forward into something that, that is that is longer running and more um, consistent, as Professor Bonneman is saying, is, is a little bit difficult, partly because people are not being encouraged at the moment politically to think in that way. So think about what's gone on in the, not just in the whole of the American election, which we saw, which was the most extraordinary spectacle, but what has happened since with... Um, um, Republican-dominated states in the South passing legislation as quickly as possible in a way that they know will exclude certain voters and doing so in order to make sure that they remain in power the next time. Well, it doesn't need to be a great deal of empathy or, or solidarity in those kinds of circumstances. And, you know, I fear greatly for the announcement in the Queen's speech that we will all be required to produce identification in order to vote. Uh, because we have to be clear that an awful lot of people will not vote under those circumstances. And it's it's not going to be people like me who are not going to vote. <laughs> it's going to be a whole lot of people who should be voting and who don't therefore have voice. So I, I, I worry about, we need to be vigilant about these matters and to speak out about them. And I think the one of the difficulties perhaps for the younger generations who've lost complete faith in the political process is that they can't see the purpose of getting involved in all of this stuff, talking shops and so on. But I think actually we do need to find our way back to a kind of politics that's effective. Thank you, Professor Moore. Um, just interesting you used the, the example there about uh, voter ID. Actually, we have voter ID in Northern Ireland and have had for many reasons, for many years. <laughs> um, so some of the, some of our listeners will be thinking, I do take my ID to vote anyway. We're, that's that's a whole different talk, so we're, we'll not get into that today. Um, so an, a, a really good question from Jen. Um, thank you, Jen, for this. What is the role of, um, Jen asked, the university, which I think she probably means Queen's, but what is the role of universities in building back better? and the potential impact of embedding the UN's Sustainable Development Goals as an integral part of the higher education curriculum. So, um, Professor O'Donovan first. It, it, that's starting, that, that's happening. The, the SDGs are informing and are becoming core work in universities across the world, um, and they're informing how universities are going to change. So that's something really positive that, that will bring together and will link and integrate some of these things together. Um, and we're looking at you know, basic things like how people can, groups of researchers can work differently together from different disciplines, you know, courses and education. You can get people from different courses working together on common problems. 
Um, so we, we are we are doing that. And there's there's a new strategy for Queens that we may hear about before the end of this coming. Very good. That's encouraging. Professor Professor Murray, same question about higher education. Yes, and, and just to reinforce what Professor O'Donovan has said, I mean, I think that <clears throat> certainly my own university very, very strong uh, commitment to the university delivering and on in its res- in research and in teaching on the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals and, you know, working out how to do that, obviously with a great deal of leadership from global health, but also leadership from elsewhere like engineering and so on. Um, and uh, I think the other thing that's beginning to happen is the, is the sense of, of these things being taught more effectively in schools because we actually have to start earlier we need we need the not just the sdgs but the whole stuff about what is whole system change you know why it matters you know why why for example in order to do something about flooding do you need to do something about land restoration <laughs> and what are the consequences of flooding on the main economy and why are we not thinking about these things in a whole system approach and i think more of that at school would be really helpful Great. Thank you. Um, I've got uh, two excellent questions to round off. So thank you to uh, Salvo again and Anonymous, whoever Anonymous is, for giving me brilliant questions to finish off with. So I'd like each of you to give me one minute in total answering these two questions, which are similar. So you'll see why I put them together. So the first one is, if you, the speaker, were world president for a day, what one measure would you bring in first? So that's the first question. And then the second question is from Claire. Sorry, it's Claire is has given her name. So this is from Claire. Thank you, Claire, for this. It's 2035 and there's a new pandemic. What do we do now to achieve a different outcome? So can I have one minute from each of our speakers, starting with Professor Moore, answering those two questions, please, to round us off. Thank you. Well, if I was president for a day, I would lay down a new regulation about planetary regeneration and a new form of solidarity between humans and non-humans. And if, and if I was going to think about, um, you know, what, what would we, what was the second part of it? I've, I've forgotten, I realised that having said that. that I'll so you, if you were president for the day, you've answered that. Yeah. Um, 2035, it's a oh, new yeah. pandemic. What do we do now to achieve a different outcome? Well, I would look to those people who've or, who were successful in this one, because there are things that worked. There are things that worked, many of them coming from the Global South. Yep. Both of those questions to finish from Professor O'Donovan, please. Hey, um, if I was world president for a day, I'd focus on pregnant women and young children and get early life and opportunities in early life addressed so that we could reduce the amount of maternal and child mortality that we have and ensure that people have opportunities to survive um, and to learn and to be in school and all the things that go with that. Um, And in 2035, if we find ourselves in another pandemic and it could have happened before that, let's hope that we, as Professor Moore says, we will have learned from what's happened now but that we will also be able to respond much more quickly, that we'll have much better information systems so we'll know what's happening and we'll know when action needs to be taken and that the leadership will be there to say action now rather than wait and see what happens. 
Thank you both. Thank you to both our speakers for your, your um, willingness to take a real range of questions there um, and for your inspiring and interesting answers. So we're going to finish the question time. And um, can I also obviously thank our audience for your participation? Lots of very interesting questions. Really good to have you submitting those questions and hopefully that has helped you to get some um, more information and better ideas on issues that are of concern to you. And I'm going to hand over now to Professor Stuart Elborn to round up the event. Uh, thank you so much, Anne. And uh, can I add my thanks to uh, uh, yours for our two speakers who I think have really treated us to uh, a both challenging, stimulating and interesting interdisciplinary discussion about the big issues that are facing this world. Uh, I think we've learned about the importance of systems, uh, not that we didn't know about systems before, but I think the pandemic has really illustrated uh, the interconnectedness of geographies, of people, uh, and also of problems, but hopefully in the future uh, of solutions. Uh, and I think both speakers have emphasized uh, the importance of really understanding uh, the systems that we live in and uh, the importance of being uh, reflective and thoughtful, but then being decisive uh, about the interventions that will uh, improve uh, the outcomes, uh, not just for the pandemic, but but more generally for those who are marginalized, vulnerable uh, and disadvantaged. I'm sure we've all learned some, some new things. I, I certainly hadn't appreciated the, uh, the differential impact on age uh, and that it's uh, our, our young people across the world who are being differentially impacted by some of the indirect effects uh, of the pandemic. Uh, we've, I guess, focused on uh, the older and vulnerable in the direct effects, but uh, I think this, this is a good illustration that, that the system's effect of this is right across uh, the whole planet and uh, everyone is being affected, though some are being affected uh, in, a, in an adverse way much more than others. And that's something for us all to think about. The, the importance of interdisciplinary research, I think, has been uh, really highlighted uh, over this lunchtime. The importance of bringing together uh, areas that sometimes can be siloed, such as uh, my own discipline of medicine. Uh, but we need to understand uh, how health uh, for the individual, how public uh, and global health intersects with economics, politics, uh, behaviour and, and culture. And I think you've heard uh, a really clear articulation uh, of the importance of working together uh, as geographies, as peoples, but also for us in the universities uh, as, as disciplines uh, to find the solutions uh, to the problems that are going to uh, continue to face us. So thank you again to our two speakers. Thank you, Anne, for your uh, wonderful handling of, uh, of the questions. Uh, and thank you uh, to the audience for your uh, engagement and for the excellent questions that have come forward. And finally, I'd like to just uh, thank uh, the team who have put this together, uh, uh, Aileen, Gordon and Morris, uh, who have uh, worked hard to make sure that this has been a smooth process and I hope, hope an enjoyable process uh, and event for all of you to participate in uh, today. So thank you very much and I, I hope the rest of your day goes well. Bye. Thank you. For more on this series, subscribe to Queen's University Belfast's Shaping a Better World podcast 
on Apple, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.